There was a list when Barcelona last thought about this. <laughs> I've lost time, isn't it? I've just got a message from Chubby. I can't, yeah, I can't show you that. A nice little one, isn't it? Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now you're welcome along to the Sunday paper review. Joe Malloy with you. So back pages are all about Manchester United, as you might imagine. The star here, Ron and on. Cristiano saves Ole Bacon as Nuno feels pressure. Manchester United 3-0 winners yesterday in London. Sunday World, Chris saves Ole from sack. And we also have a fright in the bright. That's Brighton giving uh, Liverpool a fright at Anfield. Two-all draw there. Sunday Mirror, Ronnie Volley saves Ole. Wonder goal takes pressure off boss. Picture of Ronaldo sliding on his knees after that extraordinary goal. Yesterday evening, we have the Observer. Again, it's Ronaldo all for Ole. Ronaldo leads the way in resounding 3-0 defeat of Spurs. The Mail on Sunday, similarly, it's Golden Oldies is their angle. With a combined age of 70, United veterans Cavani and Ronaldo ride to Ole's rescue. And then uh, Sunday Times, Hitman. It's Ronaldo wheeling away in celebration. All business there. Ronaldo stars as Man United beat Spurs 3-0. And I think picture of the bunch on the front pages. It's a ball on Ronaldo's laces as he volleys that strike uh, towards the bottom corner. It was an amazing strike. Ronaldo to the rescue is the headline. Spurs suffer United backlash as furious fans crack up the heat on Nuno. They are your back pages. Very happy to say Gavin Casey of the 42 is in studio. Hello. How are you, Joe? And Tommy Martin. Busy week ahead on Virgin Media, Champions League week ahead. You're very welcome, Tommy. It's all about Ole this week. Hi, Joe. Hi, Gavin. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. It's funny, though, um, how you think you have the narrative sorted and you know, you're watching the game and Sky have uh, Roy Keane back back on, uh, in the first team lineup after a bit like Cavani, you know, drafting in the big guns uh, after missing the previous week. And obviously before the match, it was you know, all guns blazing. And then the match itself, it's really interesting that like as much as it was a good good night for United, you know the formation change worked. Um, the the back three, Varane had a great game. The back three looked solid. The wing backs caused Tottenham lots of problems, and then you know Ronaldo, he's always going to make a fool out of you when you question whether you know he's signing him was a, a disaster or whatever, and, and and getting Cavani back. I mean, he just has so much. He's so clever. His movement, his experience, his class. Yeah, and to be fair to Solskjaer, he's at, I checked by he's actually only been available for five of the ten league matches, and he started two of them. So it's not like he's been totally in the cold, but you know, like they just look so much better with him uh, in the team. Having said that, any United fans thinking that last night was cause for celebration of a return, potential return to greatness, the opposition in Spurs were so poor, and it was it was just funny the the, the tone after the game. It comes to studio and it's a it's a bit like because because the story became Spurs. I know we're so focused on Man United here, and they're the bigger story. They've more fans. All the all the back pages are all pictures of Ronaldo because that was the big moment. But I mean the 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 hostility and and the the um, negativity in that Tottenham stadium towards the manager, towards the the board, towards towards Harry Kane. I mean that that became the story then, and you had you know, and, and Jermaine Defoe was in the Sky Studios, the token Spurs guy, and it was a bit like, okay, this hasn't worked out the way we planned, you know, um, and and obviously Roy and and Sunis, uh, you know, went went to town on them, so so that so the so the coverage today is kind of, okay, we've had to take a little sidestep and adjust to this. The bigger picture from United's point of view is, that was a great result for United last night, that was a terrible result for United last night, you know. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is not a bad manager. He's 
absolutely not a terrible manager, but he's he is not good enough for Manchester United. Never has been, never will be. More experience, more knowledgeable football minds than me have expressed his opinion. It's glaringly obvious. And yet he's never quite done enough to get sacked so that they can actually get somebody in who is good enough for Manchester United. And last night is just another case in point. They, you know, good performance, made some changes. They have enough class to win enough games that he won't that he, he won't get sacked. And the thing just rumbles on. So that's that's my that's my sense of it. You know, a good result and a bad result. Yeah. Gav. I think the funny thing about the Solskjaer situation is that Ed Woodward and the Man United hierarchy are actually rooting for him because they don't want to make that change. I mean, they don't want the hassle of it. They also don't want the hassle of potentially having to deal with somebody like Antonio Conte, who's going to say no to things every now and then, who isn't going to placate them and isn't necessarily going to toe the party line. I find it fascinating reading work from journalists throughout the week, actually. Miguel Delaney in the London Independent earlier in the week had a piece saying that one of the reasons why United didn't remove Solskjaer immediately after the Liverpool game is because they had absolutely no succession plan in place. And it's not a change that they had anticipated making at all this season. I find that absolutely astonishing when you consider the couple of seasons that preceded. Jonathan Norcroft makes that point on page 8 and 9 of the Sunday Times. He says, The win over woeful Spurs can't hide the fact United need to stop being so reactive and start acting like Fergie. And when he says acting like Fergie, he means succession planning and you know, uses one of the many gazillion stories you can use about Alex Ferguson, where uh, I think Norcroft worked on Peter Schmeichel's autobiography, but he remembers uh, walking around with Alex Ferguson at Carrington long after he'd retired. And Ferguson was, you know, looking at the first team, the reserves, the under 18s, and Ferguson pointed to a kid and said, see him, not next season, the season after he'll play half of our first League Cup game, Ferguson said. Sure enough, 18 months later, the youngster did. And so the point is, Ferguson planned for the future. Manchester United are not planning for the future. And Northcroft backs up that Miguel Delaney point, which is that United <coughs> really have done no planning on who might succeed Solskjaer should the season go awry. And now the season's going awry. And <laughs> they're like, oh, how do we feel about all this? And it's predictably going awry as well. I, I find it, I understand to, to a degree how United fans can get defensive over the signing of Ronaldo and when they hear... Uh, supposed boffins and, and football experts describing how it's a disruptive signing actually actually it's a bad thing you know that it might drive them nuts but the reality is that uh, Solskjaer has had to change his entire system I mean e if he had a future plan in place that's been ripped to shreds purely based on United's obsession with their own past based on their desire to be this never-ending relentless content machine I mean their Twitter account turned into just a Ronaldo fan account for about two, three weeks after its signing, right? And it is all about numbers. We know famously um, it's it's emerged plenty of times when Ed Woodward has met uh, shareholders, uh, for example, how uh, popular the club app is and their social media numbers, all these sorts of things. Uh, like the Ferguson thing is interesting in the sense that, again, it's, it's that... Um, indulging in one's own past that United are, are sort of guilty of in handing him a spare key even like I'm not saying he's driving the entire machine or, or the entire vehicle but uh, the fact that he's still so influential I can again like on paper could you could it be argued that it makes sense like he's an absolute club legend he knows more about football or he's forgotten more about football than any of us will ever know he also hasn't been a manager in eight years though and like the sport has moved on significantly since then as we've seen both on the field and off the field mm. and uh, it's unfair now to describe Ferguson as some kind of a relic. He's more than that. 
but the fact that he has such a hands-on role with the club at the moment again bewilders me like mm. i think the uh jonathan norcroft's piece which is one of the few actual sort of analytical pieces in the in, in the papers i guess maybe last night's kickoff time and maybe there was a sense that it's hard to react uh, this was obviously written before the tottenham game and there's a hastily written headline uh, win over woeful spurs can't hide the fact that united need to stop being so reactive and start acting like fergie the Fergie, acting like Fergie, um, is related. I think he's referring to some. So he says some 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 uh, critics have picked United's problems apart. An argument has emerged that the club need to have less Fergie in the thinking. Um, that was a reference, I think, to Jonathan Liu in the Guardian. Uh, I wrote a piece about the the you know this uh, ridiculous adherence, as Gavin <clears throat> touches on there, uh, adherence to what he called Fergieism. Um, and as you said, Joe. North Cross pieces to, is to take the things from Ferguson's time, which were he was all about forward planning, all about making that uh, thinking ahead of the, the opposition, not being reactive. You know, reactive is the word that is used again and again in this piece. United are totally reactive. They're they're they've done some renovations to the stadium only when it was like becoming the places started falling apart. You know, the, the Ronaldo tra- transfer reactive. You know, the the thing about not having a succession plan, reactive. Like, if they do have to sack Solskjaer, they'll just do what they always do, look around and get the most expensive, closest option that they can possibly reach for. Um, but the whole thing about the Fergieism is, is that, you know, and, and Jonathan Lewis pieces, that it's all about these kind of sort of tropes of Fergieism, you know, winger, or like vague sort of things about wingers and last-minute winners and, you know, passion and flying football and... And sort of, you know, bringing back old faces like Ollie and like Ronaldo, and this sort of, you know, I mean, it, all this is, all this has been said so many times before. But the fact that Old Trafford to become a theme park for, for that sort of, uh, you know, nos- United sort of nostalgia, and it's hard not to think, especially after last s- Sunday, and you can't let last night, as I said, Spurs were so bad. Like that's a, that's a whole other story. Mm. They are such so bad. You can't let it color the fact United, Manchester United. Are have become a bit of a joke, like they have become a, a, a joke football club because of the way it's been run. They, you know, they have thrown enough money at it to stay reasonably competitive. But all the things that all the best in class teams do, United just haven't been doing them. And you get game, you get situations like last Sunday, which was it was so embarrassing from a United point of view, and everything about it, Fergie hanging around, Ollie. And the, I mean, he's just not, he doesn't cut the figure of a Manchester United manager. He doesn't cut the figure of a top class manager. He's a Preston North End manager. He's a decent, you know, managing a team competing in the championship, maybe getting into the Premier League. He's not at all saying he's a, a, you know, not cut out to be a football manager, but he's just not cut out to be, (laughs) professionally cut out to be a Manchester United manager. Um, And all those aspects, and and North Cross pieces is sort of, you know, goes on then and he, he, you can talk about you know his last paragraph then is saying like okay what do they need to do to get the right sort of Fergieism in that it is not reactive and it is forward planning a developer of youth products a builder a person who gets traditions a holistic leader someone who can coach detailed dynamic collective football in the modern way that sounds more like Brendan Rogers mm. so that's another argument like who who might that man be but um, yeah, so I mean definitely uh, against a, a limp Spurs uh, victory last night doesn't doesn't change a lot, I don't think. I suspect all of us sat up a bit straighter when we saw Roy Keane was in studio last night because that's just the reality of consuming football on television now. And so Paul McGrath straight in in the Sunday world. Roy Keane absolutely right to put the boot into United as McGrath's 
take. And then David Walsh, back page of the Sunday Times. Uh, Mute the cheerleading pundits. Spare me their delirious dancing. Let's hear more cantankerous talk from Skulls and Keane. At least then we may actually learn the truth. So, you know, for instance, he's not a fan of the likes of Ian Wright dancing in the studio when Harry Kane scores the winner for England in the Euros. He wants the cantankerous type pundits. But he does say that uh, the disappointment last week he felt when the likes of Fabinho and Thiago were injured was nothing compared with the sense of deprivation that came with the realisation that Roy Keane wasn't in the Sky lineup. And he goes on to talk about the pundits who work best can be occasionally cantankerous. Graeme Souness, Keane, Paul Scholes, they may not always be right, but they're prepared to challenge the consensus view. And he says of Souness, you'll often disagree with his assessment of a player or an incident. Over time, though, you realise he's seldom wrong. And he says, the loser when pundits are presented as fans is that we can no longer trust their judgment. If they so desperately want uh, their team to win, then can they make unbiased calls? So, look, he doesn't want the cheerleaders. He wants the cantankerous types in the studio. And Gav, I suspect when he saw no Roy Keane in the Sky Sports studio last week, he wasn't alone in thinking we're missing a vital player here. Yeah, I think Keane yesterday, what was it, but just before kickoff in the Spurs game, mm. um, when he went on one of those, obviously, trademark seething rants uh, like the impression although, of although with enough control to do a Harry Maguire impersonation well I was just going to say I, 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 <laughs> like, I, I was wondering where he was going to go with it I, like, I have to admit right, I, I find Roy Keane very entertaining still yeah. and I, I find it astonishing that so many sports journalists have the confidence to say Roy Keane is boring I mean nobody wants to hear sports journalists talk about why they don't find Roy Keane interesting like just go with I mean, if you don't find him interesting, fair enough, but I would uh, suggest he's still pretty compelling. He obviously doesn't have a great deal of insight to offer in terms of like tactical analysis or whatever. Mm. We know all of this, but when he goes off on one like that or when you kind of hear the gears turning and, and the ignition starting, you're kind of wondering, all right, where will this end? The Maguire impression probably bumps it up to, to one of his all-time great <laughs> outbursts, <laughs> but behind it, there were salient points. And like, uh, I mean, I agree with McGrath. He is right to call out the players because realistically like first and foremost if you are a pundit it, it's your job to do that forget about like his connection to the club I know David Walsh makes the, the point in his piece that uh, Keane can be dispassionate about the club while still being passionate about team performance I mean I actually think that in and of itself is a bit of a performance he said um, in the intervening years since he left United that he he'd sort of he no longer followed them or supported them so to speak and that they were always more so his employers but he still goes to United Games and I think it's very evident he still cares about what's going on at the club right um, what I find I suppose interesting about him not being there a week prior then is you have say like what I find Gary Neville is a little bit of an outlier in, in what what both McGrath and Walsh are speaking about I suppose in the sense that he's always willing to call out team performance and even the club won't call out the manager and has made a big song and dance about the fact he'd never call for any manager to be sacked which is fair enough mm. uh, but I, I do think it's interesting that he's been so that he was so upfront about the fact that I think it was on Monday Night Football a couple of weeks ago he was making the case for himself not calling out Solskjaer on the basis that he is my friend actually I actually like him he's a nice guy and on the one hand, you kind of think, yeah, actually, like, zoom out here for a second, right? If you were in that situation and if it was your friend, what's more important to you? Um, doing your job, so to speak, to borrow Roy Keane's phrase, or actually not alienating somebody who you actually care about? You know what I mean? On a human level, what's more important? The argument then is, 
Like, should he be on those games or, or like in that situation, as it is at the moment where Solskjaer's job is on the line, should Neville actually be covering United games? Like, it's interesting, he was on co-commentary yesterday for the Spurs game, you know? And I'm wondering even, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a tangential or a separate conversation, but like, the role of a pundit or a co-commentator in that situation, if you're a Spurs fan and you're paying for Sky Sports and you're watching that game, like... I, like Neville is obviously very United centric United focused everything yesterday was about United until as Tommy mentioned earlier it it wasn't when the Spurs fans turned it kind of became a Spurs story but mm. I don't know like the the, the, the entire thing of, of the fact that pundits now are, are invariably all partisan in some way it, it would suggest like market forces are, are moving in that direction that's what people want to see three of us sitting here and plenty of people at home probably would like to see more dispassion or, or people removed from it and speaking about it more analytically a little bit. Mm. What do you make of it all, Tommy? I think, well, look, on, on the... I mean, look, um, David Walsh is absolutely right. You know, you, you need... You need the guys who, who call it as they see it. And if a, if a, fan, if a pundit is a fan and, and, a, and is not um, unbiased and, and is partial... You, you know the, the viewer is going to suffer just as a slight tangent you know he talks about some of the things around the england coverage during from the various channels during the summer those big international ones can be hard ones for 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 broadcasters to get the tone up because they are they can be moments of national celebration mm. and you know sometimes you have to be seen to, to get the national mood but again you know it goes too far particularly in england like i always think of Italian 90 and you know this, it comes back to studio and uh Villa Hurley ha- has the the novelty uh the, the novelty hat on and uh, saying you know ole ole we're off to Rome and you know the two lads Dunphy and Giles are kind of laughing at him and there's a little bit of that it's, but it, it kind of got the balance right I think the English broadcasters just go too far and, and they kind of lose the plot and the dancing stuff is is too much but I can kind of understand that sort of that can be hard to get the tone of um in terms of the United thing, and, and this comes back to what Scholes said about, about Keane, United have been so badly served by the, the platoon of uh, ex-United players, ex-Solskjaer mates in the, in the media. If if you have... if you have, it's, it's like the housing crisis, or it's like the um, the economic crash here, you know, that the, the accusation that the papers and, and the media didn't call didn't call the situation out because they were getting too much money from property supplements. If you are in, in some way, uh, if you if, if the media is in some way um, not able to call it correctly and truly and without fear or favor, ultimately it's a bad thing in the long run because you, you, you will let things go on that need to be called out way sooner because it suits you, it suits your, uh, your partiality um, to, that, it, that, it do, that it is so. It suits Gary Neville and, and indeed Roy Keane, uh, and indeed up until now so, uh, schools for Oli to do well because he's their mate and they, they don't have to go and do, as, as Gavin says, not a, not an easy thing to go and, and say, look, I'm sorry, he's not. this is not the right thing, for this, this is not the right man for the job, this is not the right, the right way things are, are being doing. So everybody saying fair play to schools, he'd come out last week and, and criticised the performance. Bit bit late, pal, bit bit late. You know, I mean, I mean listen, you know, I'm not blowing smoke up our own arses but no, in, in, I mean look at someone like like Damien Delaney we were covering Europa League Manchester United last year on, on version and he was making all these points detailed analysis you know clips basically his line was United are tolerating mediocrity here and that was the point I, I sort of t- touched on when I was saying like Oli is a, is a perfectly good championship manager and these guys 
all these pundits have come and they have facilitated that. Mm. And we, to come back to Gavin's point, you know, it's only football. It's not, it's not that serious. So let's not get too pompous about it. But in reality, Gary Neville should recuse himself on all discussion of Man United and their manager and their tactics and how they approach. If he's, if he's to, to declare that he's my mate, that is colouring my view, he should recuse himself. But look, it's only football. Mm. Let's have him there and we can laugh at him and, and take, the, take the mick out of everyone. But in reality, that's where, that's where it is. I sort of feel in defence of Neville, he's got a, a lot of criticism in the past week and I understand it because it was a difficult line to hold after the Liverpool 5-0 on the managerial situation. To be fair to him, he's, he's, he's non-discriminatory in his position of never calling for any manager to be sacked regardless of the club and he's never done that. So we're not talking about somebody who's called for several managers in the past to be sacked and is now making an exception for Solskjaer. That is just a policy of his. And actually... I think all the pundits are following suit now. It seems to be a general softening of society that we don't just call for managers to be sacked the way it was, co- you know, it was commonplace he, ten years ago. Joe, Even Joe, he, yeah, he's had a cross from Jamie Carragher that same night, or or one in, in one of the around the same time, and Carragher made that point that this is not a manager that would that City would have, that Liverpool would have, that yeah. Chelsea would have. Yeah. End of discussion. And that's not a. That's not a. You know, that's not a oh, you know, drive a man out of his job, hound a man out of his job point. It's but just... it's it's funny, Tommy, like you mentioned that and, and like what you were saying there, Joe, about how most pundits are following suit because Carragher even climbed down a little bit from that in saying like, you know, like, oh, well, they're not going to replace him now, you know, but at the end of the season and you're like, mm. OK, so like there's a little caveat there. You, do, you need to assess the situation at the end of the season. You don't need to sack your manager he, now. He did also say, I will never call for a manager to be sacked either, but he's not good enough. Man United will never win a Premier League title or a uh, Champions League with him to, at the helm. One last, this is the last time I'll use this expression to be fair to Neville. He has said Solskjaer needs to win a trophy. Yeah. So there is a degree of yeah, but well, I mean, yeah, Car- I mean to go back to Carragher's point, like we're probably, probably rehashing an entire episode of Monday Night Football here, but like Carragher in that same conversation was saying, you know, you win a Europa League or an FA Cup, is, is that enough? And I would say in the third year of this uh, experiment in nostalgia, even two of them wouldn't be enough. Sure. No, I accept that. I accept that. Yeah. I mean, it does just go, I mean, so we talked more about all that business than the game. <laughs> but the game was Can meaningless. Say, the game was yeah, meaningless. Yeah, I mean, look, I my uh, my son, uh, God love him, lifetime of pain has decided to be a Tottenham fan, and uh, so I kind of watch their games with a little bit of um, a little bit of interest in the sense of how how they're doing. And they have been for three years now. They have been lifeless. Wouldn't they've been like the dance floor at a chartered accountant's Christmas party, in the way they've come to play football just completely there's there's been no from a team under Pochettino in the early time which are full of energy and attitude and and, and really went at you and they've been so and it's just reached its absolute absolute uh, apotheosis last night they were so flat and I think that the fans sitting in this palatial stadium watching this dreck and there and, and the thing it got it for me is I was watching them coming out for one of the recent games be led out by Harry Kane and you know it's not all about you know okay being captain these it's not about it's not like you know Paul O'Connell stuff, like, yeah, but uh, you know, it's you're still being led out to battle by a guy who doesn't want to be there. I mean, Jesus, they are, you know. It's, Kane, uh, Kane was absolutely pathetic, uh, and so, like, so. It, it was probably the most conspicuous I've ever seen a player not try. I mean, it, it was, it was. 
on a, on a professional level, you'd kind of think, even just having a bit of professional pride, you know, he, it wasn't a case of downing tools. Like, he didn't even bring the tools. Uh, like, I was surprised to see him wearing boots, you know. But just going back to, like, the, the sort of... You two have had extra shots of coffee this morning, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Holy. Nice are you talking about the, Are you talking about the first goal, Gavin, where the ball comes out oh. and uh, Maguire goes to make it? And, and Kane is there. He's in picture. And he's like, you know, a, a PlayStation where there's a character that's like a random, you know, he's, he's not being controlled. He's just sort of wandering around. But he, wasn't, he wasn't acting with agency or free will. He was just sort of, oh, it's just... Like, like, yeah, he was, he was um, just a kind of a vacant... Pre- like, even when the fans turn on Kane, so a couple of times he gives the ball away and you can actually hear the poison coming from the stands at this yeah. point. Like, and he doesn't even break into a jog. Yeah. He's done, you know, or at least he was done for the day yesterday quite early on. But just on the, like we've obviously spoken about uh, United a lot and their managerial situation. But for Nuno Espirito Santo, like I, I would suggest that uh, to to state as Carragher did about Solskjaer, he's, he's not the right, he's not good enough for this club. He's not good enough to retain the job beyond the end of the season or whenever. I think that's fair game. Like, what are we doing? Why are we tiptoeing around this? It's yeah. not some sort of sacred position. Yeah. Um, but equally, or on the flip side, I felt very sorry for Nuno Espirito Santo. He seems like a lovely man and a very intelligent man. And I thought on the back of his job at Wolves, especially that initial season, he looked like he was a manager of real calibre. But he was about their eighth choice. And the fans knew that. Like, it wasn't even a secret. And I reckon they kind of realise now, obviously, it's probably not going to... Like, his, his style of football isn't going to work for them the players don't look like they're going to really work for him. And I found it like I, I thought it was the most sort of stirring or stunning example of, of fans turning on their own manager in a game. I know there there have been situations in the past where like somebody has flung a season ticket at, I don't know, Steve McLaren or somebody well, like that. But The whole stadium booing the substitution of Mora mm. was an amazing moment. That was incredible. But wow. the, the, when uh, a couple of times the fans would start chanting and I was like trying to listen in over the commentary to, to hear what, like, are they singing like, you know, we want Nuno out or something like that? I think they were at one point. At one point they were singing, you, you don't know what you're doing to the referee. But I think they also started singing that towards Nuno after the Mora substitution. And then the camera pans to him and he looks just, I mean, he looks almost... It's not even fair to say like beleaguered or whatever the usual term is for manager. He looked actually genuinely sad, you know. Um, and like, it's funny. I know people were joking about the game being El Sacico or whatever. But all of the focus going into the game was on can Solskjaer save his job? And in reality, as it transpired, it's probably the game in which Nuno Espirito Santo lost his. It feels that way. Something totally different. Page six of the Sunday Independent. Tommy, I know you picked this out. Atletico tie harks back to a much darker time. This is Liverpool against Atletico on Wednesday this week. And it harks back to that uh, week in March when we realised that the world was changing in a big way. So um, it's Andy Hunter here. And this is in The Observer as well. Talks about how Madrid on March 11th was a centre of... Covid outbreak from a European perspective. Schools have been closed, legal matches behind closed doors, and yet 3,000 Atletico supporters were amongst the 52,000 at Anfield. Staying in Liverpool hotels, travelling on public transport, celebrating in Liverpool pubs after knocking out the holders. Uh, local hospitals reported an additional 37 deaths shortly afterwards. And then you'll remember this is the week at Cheltenham, this is the week of Mikel Arteta's positive test, this is Jurgen Klopp walking out of the tunnel, and fans all stretching down to try and get a high, high five on him rebuking them livid with mm. how they're behaving and there's uh, an insight here from Pep Linders the Liverpool assistant manager 
And he says, I remember us speaking before the game about not shaking hands, not having mascots, all these things. I remember a friend of Jürgen calling him and saying, make sure you don't shake Simeone's hand. Uh, that's a good one after what happened the other week, he says, which is uh, ironic. All right. Uh, behind the scenes, writes Andy Hunter, the Liverpool manager was becoming increasingly concerned. Carlo Ancelotti says he told me that going ahead with the game in those conditions was a criminal act. Ancelotti says, I think he was right. And on they go and they talk about how this match happened on March 11th, which was the same day the WHO declared the situation as a pandemic. And the Cheltenham Festival obviously went ahead as well, attracting more than 250,000 people. The report into all this, subsequent analysis suggested that there were an additional 37 and 41 deaths respectively. This is after the Liverpool match and after Cheltenham at local hospitals after these events. However, it's not clear whether those deaths were as a result of attendance at the events themselves or associated activities such as travel or congregation in pubs. But I guess, you know, it's all part of the same event, isn't it? And you, you think of those numbers, if they were associated with a crush or a fire or some kind of tragedy at a stadium, they'd be immortalised. 37 and 41 deaths respectively. And there's um, Beige, he was at the game, at the Atletico game. Very fit man, attended the gym twice a week. He fell ill with coronavirus a fortnight after the game and died a short time later on the ventilator. And his son, uh, Jamie, gives a quote, talks about how he'd been going to Anfield for 50 years. He had to walk through Atletico fans to get to the game. They were outside the ground. And his wife, Mary, adds, <coughs> when he was being taken away, it was 3 a.m. when I called the ambulance. I was stuck looking out the window as my husband of 50 years was taken away. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. He never came back. The only time I saw him again was to say goodbye over a video. It was awful and we could only have 10 people at his funeral. So that's a sobering piece, to say the least, Tommy, not least with Atletico back at Anfield, almost on the anniversary. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's the reason for the piece um, to sort of mark that. But also, I think that report is is only out uh, maybe last week. And I think uh, Barney Roney, this is the, from the, um, the, the preliminary report into the UK government's uh, early response to the pandemic, which has been described as one of the worst public health fail- failures in UK history. Um, with, uh, the findings be led by two Tory ministers, so uh, it's just, which is pretty damning. And I think I think Barney Roney had written a column maybe last week in the Guardian saying who who's been held to account for this? Like why where like why why isn't there as you say like look at those figures thirty seven dead from you know in the hospitals as a result of the Liverpool Atletico Madrid game or certainly in in the aftermath of it forty one in the Cheltenham thing. Um, and and nobody held from account. You know, Matt Hancock lost his job because of a, a steamy clinch in the in, in in the office boardroom. You know, um, but you know, um, oh, there's another quote then from uh, Liverpool season ticket holder who organised some of the um, some of the local uh, re- uh, response um, in the aftermath, and and it just takes you back to that time. You know, and and like we we actually broadcast the Liverpool at Edigo game that night I remember and it was a case of it was that sort of that crazy week you know uh, we all remember Cheltenham and it was it was a sense of like this is happening should this be happening I guess it's happening okay let's talk about the football and then you're looking at the crowds and the Lego fans going not sure about this and that was the last match we had we, we we broadcast then for you know for five whatever many five months um and and the Cheltenham one I always remember I think I think Philip Quinn um of the Mail wrote a really great diary piece about going over and the way that the, the tone of that week changed, you know, there was a bit of maybe a small amount of defiance early in the week. Of like, oh, sure, look, we go ahead. And then by about Wednesday, 
you know, it was sort of like, this is not good, guys. This is not good. Um, the, the point that's, you know, is made in this about, like, it, it, it was the tone coming from the top, you know. Uh, this is Peter Middleman, the Liverpool season ticket order, said, we, we all knew something was coming, but it was hard to manage your own fears against the business-as-usual approach elsewhere, i.e. from the top. Uh, the Prime Minister was boasting at that time about shaking people's hands in hospital and saying we should continue to do so. I wasn't surprised the game went ahead, and I'd be lying if I said I doubted about going, but I was sitting in the main stand next to a fellow from Germany, and then there was 3,000 Madrid supporters in the city. You know, it, it, it's just a, it was just a huge failure of leadership. Um, the tone of the leadership, the actual actions of the leadership uh, in allowing it to go ahead. And, like, it's... It, it, to go back to the point that Barney Roney was made, who's been held to account, it's it just par for the course in, in the, the tone and... Um, tenor of of the uk political uh, leadership at the moment and this is a, this is a tragic sort of uh, uh, story in, in that regard mm. i suppose if you were one of the suppose uh, apparent leaders or um supposed leaders you could or you would attempt to point back towards this as being a more innocent time in which we weren't quite familiar with the virus or or its potential impact or i mean try to recuse yourself from responsibility in a sense uh, by trying to explain that you know we didn't know what was coming down the tracks we didn't know with these uh, with both of these events the, the potential implications but we did like I remember distinctly the conversation around both of them yeah. the conversation around both of those events was this will cause deaths yeah and it did so uh, I'd imagine I mean <laughs> This was a week where I think the Conservative Party were considering a herd immunity policy. As right. Well. You know, that's yeah. what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. But it's just, I, I suppose, like the mind plays tricks and everybody's been through a lot over the last 80 months and so on. And people might be tempted to believe, I, I'm not talking about Irish people necessarily, I mean people over the, in the UK might be tempted to believe, well, you know, we didn't know back then how bad it was going to be. They did know. Yeah. They, they knew exactly. In some ways, Jurgen Klopp walking out of the tunnel and the anger at the hands coming down to him yeah. is all anyone in authority needs to know about what was going on. And I also got the impression at that time that now maybe this is partially uh, influenced or informed by Liverpool losing that game and being knocked out of the Champions League but I think Klopp was furious about having to play the game at all mm. and I think he probably felt as though some of the discourse around the game and uh, probably the, the moral quandary he found himself in mm. uh, played a role in them losing that game. I mean, it's a big distraction. As he said to Angelotti, he, th- he believes it was a criminal act. Yeah. So that's what he thinks. So uh, that's in the uh, Observer and the Sunday Independent. There's other football pieces. We'll get to the Republic of Ireland. Mark Gallagher and Eamon Sweeney writing about a huge week for Vera Pay and the team. But just to move off football uh, for a few moments, in GAA terms, you've got Colm O'Rourke in the Sunday Independent and he is livid with the self-interest at play and the rejection of Plan B. You've got Joe Brawley who enjoys the club scene, a magical mystery tour of a nation. He loves nothing more than this time of year and going off and turning up at matches. Um, O'Rourke is scathing I would say in his assessment of the Ulster counties and he points out that really we go on about the Ulster Championship in his opinion if you excuse Cavan and their recent success it's really Tyrone Donegal and Monaghan it's 13 years since our were winners so it's not true to say anyone can win it for Man, I've never won it Ulster's last win was 1951 but he says you know Dublin sat in their hands didn't divulge their vote often the leaders have changed this time they opted out same could be said of Galway and Mayo short-sighted view is uh, they're likely uh, winners or runners-up in Connacht, so they make the quarterfinals. 
He's bemused by the position of Limerick. He says it's harder to work out what's in a provincial system for them. Nothing except prolonged annoyance and frustration. He says he's also still struggling as to why over 50% in any democracy isn't enough to bring about change and wonders why it has to be 60%. Uh, And he makes the point, no county which has won the All-Ireland over the past 20 years, apart from Cork, voted for change. So he said the unspoken word from all the strong counties is basically to hell with everyone else. And he says, you know, the, the Division 1 side's worried about finishing sixth and not qualifying for the knockouts. He says, if you finish sixth of eight in any competition, you should stay very quiet and not look for a way to slide into the playoffs. Selfishness ruined a real chance for change is the headline there, Gav. Yeah. Did it, like, or was it just flaws in the plan for change? I'm not sure. I, I know that a lot of the conversation around it was that uh, neither solution was perfect and maybe imperfect change is better than no change at all. Um, I don't know. There are enough reasons, I suppose. I mean, ultimately, we saw that in the in the vote to uh, to not pass it. Um, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> Tommy, what do you reckon? Um, I think it's a really strong column um, from o- O'Rourke. Um, a really good piece of sort of Sunday opinion writing in that he basically, you know, roundly spanks the bottom of everybody involved from the weaker counties who who, who didn't vote to change their lot from the, the stronger counties who didn't um, who didn't look on, uh, you know, look on, look on changing the system that has basically benefited them. You know, no county which has won, no county which has won the All-Ireland in the past 20 years, apart from Cork, voted to change the system. Mm. You know, spoken word from all the strong counties is basically to hell with everyone else. Um, he rounds on the committee, the people who come up with the motions who didn't, this was, a, you know, these proposals were orphans, basically. They didn't have uh, any strong political leadership. I know we're going to mention, maybe just mention also Eamon Sweeney in a, in a small sidebar in his column. You know, he, round, he, he rounds on Larry McCarthy, president of the GEA, uh, comparing him to the leadership Sean Kelly showed in uh, 2005 with the Cro- opening up of Crow Park. Larry, you know, it was which was in stark contrast with McCarthy's half-hearted endorsement of Proposal B just a few days before the vote. Um, Kelly wasn't afraid of, wasn't scared of putting his head above the parapet. That's what leadership is. Delivering attention-seeking statements about the media being mean to players is trivial stuff by comparison, which is uh, in relation to a different story. Like, I, I don't know whether I think the GA leadership got what they wanted, because to me, if they had a wanted proposal B or proposal whatever to get through, they would have been much stronger in their um, support of it. But it's almost like they kind of said, not sure about this, going to test the waters, see how it does. If there's a bit of an uh, appetite for it, we'll kick it down another year, we'll tweak it, we'll, and then we'll, we'll then we'll bring our big guns to the table when there's a bit more of a... Uh, a bit more of a um, satisfactory proposal on the table that we think, it, it, you know, that appeals a bit more. They they just did not come to bat for, for this at all. I know you said they came out the week off and did a press conference and and it was a bit kind of like, yeah, okay, mate, yeah, well, you know, we think that's a personal opinion. No, I think proposal B is good. Yeah, it just wasn't. They weren't they weren't driving it. And 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 so one of our root points is that the people who came up from the come up the committee, they weren't there making big. Um, uh, support of it as well, as well as surrounding on the, you know, the the, the turkeys vote not voting for Christmas or whatever, the, mm. and the provincial councils uh, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's it's um, look. I think I think at the end, 
Rourke said maybe the voice of reason from John Horan should have been adopted, put the motion through, tidy up some loose ends and start in 2023 with a two-year experiment that would hardly have scattered the horses. Something, anything, you know, something that would have been, that would have at least shown a sign of respect to the players, the 80% of the players who came out and very strongly endorsed change. And like it was mandate, mandate for change. I think, you know, Gavin's right. It's not perfect. There are flaws with it. The provincial championship basically would become you know, a pre-season event, can you can you give the provincial championship a bit more, you know, throw a bone towards that? Like O'Rourke talks about that as well, what you might do for that. They could have done a lot. They could have come up with something, dickied it up on the day and got it through if there had been a will there. Instead, it's another year down the line. Plenty of players have to go and slog out another year. Ultimately, do these guys care? I don't know if they do. Um, that's because some of, the, some of the voices against the change didn't sound like they were too cared too much about about what the GPA were saying on behalf of their players. They were a bit sniffy about them at times. Now they've got to go out to slog out for another bunch of hammerings in the provincial championship next year. And in GA terms, one year isn't a big deal. Maybe it gets changed for 2023. But I, there was just a, a little bit of respect, something that showed a little bit of respect towards the strong view of the players might have been nice. Um, so we'll come to... Um... Gerlach Nan, who's fairly scathing of the Clare County Board in a moment in the Sunday Times. I think there's a scathing quality, really, to Tommy Conlon on Marty Morrissey, who's a new book out. I mean, wincing reading parts of this. He he, he went for him a little bit, I think. So um, Marty Morrissey has a new book out and it's kind of a difficult piece to even talk about. So he takes some quotes from the book, how Marty Morrissey is saying he doesn't want to be a celebrity. Do I want to be well known? He writes, absolutely not. I'm only... I only strive to be as good a commentator as it could be. And he's saying, ah, Marty, here. And then another quote, I couldn't care less if I was never seen on TV. I just want to go to the games. And Tommy writes, ah, FFS, Marty, pull the other one. So he's not buying the I don't want to be famous. And uh, the headline of the piece is Marty's the Matrix, where GEA and local showbiz intertwine. And look, we're all entitled to our uh, opinions and what we like and don't like. And he doesn't feel, he says, Marty is professional, but he's not a craftsman and certainly not an artist at the microphone. And he talks about generic quality of his vocabulary, shallow levels of discernment and the rampant proliferation of superlatives to describe routine pieces of play. Words of praise from him have become almost meaningless because they're thrown around like confetti at a wedding. The word passion is rarely far from his lips and uh, says the passion aspect long ago became patronising and tedious. But as long as there's passion, he writes, the rest will take care of itself. The rest can be as rough and ready as the farmer as a farmer's mart as long as you're shouting and roaring into the microphone. It's good enough for a country job. And he says, personally, I'd much prefer if they dialed down the passion and scaled up the precision, uh, more precision in their linguistic skills, in their judgments and in their colour and the tone of their commentaries. I think he's talking about maybe GA commentary at large here and talks about um, the greats across the water. Harry Carpenter and David Coleman, Barry Davies, John Motson, Murray Walker, Peter Alice, Bill McLaren, on he goes, Richie Benno, all those and he says the gold standard was there next door in Britain. It's almost as if that never dawned on Marty that we might have been exposed to that standard as an audience and might therefore aspire to hearing better from our own commentators. As a result, passion is not enough and never has been. And uh, later refers to George Hamilton as a craftsman. And uh, on he goes. I mean, it's um, it's tough stuff, um, Tommy Martin, is it not? <laughs> uh, it certainly is. Um, yeah, everybody is entitled to their uh, opinions, um, as you say, Joe. And... Uh, Tommy doesn't uh, doesn't leave you guessing as to what his, his view on poor old Marty uh, as a commentator. The whole thing that whole thing about 
the excessive deployment of passion in GA commentary, particularly at local level. I think he's onto something there. I think it can. It does boil over. Like, look, at national level, the, the clips get uh, get played. You know, when uh, whenever something, you know, somebody wins something that they haven't won anything in forty years, and you know, the, the commentators screaming and crying into the microphone is like, and people go, oh, "Isn't that amazing? That's wonderful." And you know, it's like to me to be honest like it's it's a bit overdone now yeah i get get that you need to reflect the the passion of the occasion and the the so kind of stop using that word now passion uh, <laughs> the emotion of the occasion and the, the gravity of it but you know tommy Collins talking about craftsmen here and he's talking about these commentators who like i was i was raised listening to all these as well as and miholo hair and miholo mahartik you know the the give me i'm not more of a, a barry davies or dan maskell man than uh than some of the than F and Eddie, uh, to be honest, you know, mm. in terms of my own preference. But mm. the piece that, to be honest, like, look, he's talking about. He goes on to talk about the Marty phenomenon, and that that is actually an interesting thing. Whatever about commentary, in your opinions, on what makes good commentary, the Marty phenomenon is an interesting thing. You know, the headline is a good headline. The Matrix, where GA and local showbiz intertwine, like it is an extraordinary phenomenon. He is so popular and loved, and there's a, the pictures of Marty being uh, kissed on either cheek by two. Uh, to uh, a, a attractive, uh, uh, mature women uh, <laughs> in, the, in the little inset, inset picture. But he says, uh, Morrissey is a matrix where GAA and local showbiz become intertwined. He's a very Irish kind of cultural phenomenon. It would take a bit of explaining to visitors. You might start by saying he's a sort of cross between a curate and a cabaret singer and a rural corner forward and a pole-topping county councillor, but they wouldn't understand much of that either. Listen, we could be here all night. Marty is Marty. He's as Irish as a bucket of turf, but he has a bit of American chutzpah about him too. <laughs> he loves his ga, he's fond of his showbiz, there's a welcome on the mat for him wherever he goes, and there's not many who can have that said about them, even in this land of Cade Milafalcha. So, mm. you know, it's, uh, I don't know, is it a peculiarly Irish phenomenon? Maybe every, I guess every country probably has colourful uh, characters that intertwine between sport, you know, and that, that bit where the where, where mass popular sport intertwines with, with showbiz and maybe it's I don't know I mean I think of Jimmy Greaves the late Jimmy Greaves who passed uh, shortly there a few weeks ago in you know in the 80s he was a little bit like that because he was a much loved football um, uh, analyst but he became sort of a celebrity he ended up doing the, the TV slot on, on, on breakfast television and you know because he was he was just a, a lovable personality and you know, I'm sure there's loads of examples in, in, in different countries so I don't know if it's a peculiarly Irish phenomenon but Marty's definitely the incarnation of that uh, uh, GA and uh, showbiz uh, intersection I think it's a difficult thing to do Joe to properly assess the skills of a commentator because none of us can do it like only, the only people who can do it are the people who are doing it right and I, I find it often the criticism of a commentator often comes down to just uh, almost an irrational or personal dislike even myself particular commentators on BG Sport, whatever, I'll just be like, I don't think I like him. Mm. And and it, I find it annoying. Mm. And I'm not saying that's what Tommy has done at all, because he actually does uh, a very good job of, uh, I suppose, analytically breaking down the role of a commentator, whatever about Marty. I'm glad he sort of pulls it back around in the end and basically says, sure, look, he is who he is and, and people like him. Mm. But... You know, there's a line in here as well, like just after he's, uh, I suppose, criticising Marty's craft or his, his grasp of the craft. Uh, mind you, it doesn't seem to matter much with the public. And that's when he goes on to discuss the the line that Marty tends to tread between salt of the earth, man of the people commentator and, and the showbiz mm. element to it. 
I, I think it does matter to the people, but I also think it matters to each individual person very differently. I think it's a case of, you know, what are you having yourself? I, I know plenty of people who find Marty Morrissey's commentary annoying. I also know plenty of people who think he's absolutely brilliant and the soliloquies and the prose he delivers at the start of a, mm. an All-Ireland hurling final will have the hair standing up at the backs of necks. And going back to what Tommy, Tommy was saying about the well the P word there like and, and even on a, on a local level guys screaming down the mic well that means something to people from, from that area you know if I hear uh, I don't know somebody winning the, the Limerick Senior Club Championship or whatever hurling uh, it might not kind of get the juices flowing for me but it sure will for the people in that locality so I think there is a, a role for passionate commentary maybe not all of the time but and, and in fairness as Tommy says yeah it, it might be a little bit overdone now but I also think the reason why it feels overdone is because we're just more exposed to it because the SoundCloud links will pop up and there'll be an article on, on uh, a website saying like oh you have to listen to this brilliant local commentary from whatever um, I'm not sure that it has increased we just maybe hear more of it and are therefore a little bit more adverse to it mm. Listen to how Jimmy McGee called John Tracy's medal in 1984 or you know Katie Taylor's gold in 2012 or you know George Hamilton called the, the, the 1990 penalty shootout like that was is, those were major moments of, of you know passion <laughs> our, our passions of the viewers were certainly running high but they called them perfectly because they were in control of their craft but they, but they remained in control of their craft throughout the moment of intense drama and uh, you know and, and, and glory and, and excitement you know so that's I guess that's probably where, where Tommy Collins is coming up uh, mm. at from this piece. But Jesus, you can't hammer Marty Morrissey for the fact that people like him. <laughs> and he is a star. Like he's just got, he has got star quality. Like he's got, that's whatever that quality is. He just has that little, little thing that, that people like. Yeah. So, you know, good luck to Gerlock Nan. It's funny. So you flick through the papers and uh, you're trying to see, well, what we talk about? And even before you read the piece, you see Sherlock Nan's done an interview with Christy O'Connor and you say, right, Grant, we'll be talking about that one way or another. You know, he just uh, has that quality as well. So the headline of the piece is a quote from Lucknan. We've known for years that Claire has been run like a 1960s village shop. So this is Lucknan. Basically, uh, it's not about him as such, this interview. It's about him giving a, a damning verdict on the way things are being run at Clare County Board level, frankly. Now, it starts off great. It does start off about him. Frankly, I'd, I'd prefer Lachnan talking about Lachnan most of the time, I think. But um, it gets into Clare County Board. But it does talk about his love of the hounds and he's got 12 to 16 dogs and his GPS tracker regularly shows him covering between 20 and 25k, climbing through gates, jumping over trenches and bog holes and crossing rivers. He looks as fit now as he does when he was managing Clare, which he does, to be fair. He still looks so lean. But um, of Clare County Board, there's a recent uh, report in Clare, the Strategic Review Committee and... Uh, so Lochnan is uh, damning. He's damning of Carlone. It needs approximately five hundred thousand to address the state of the four pitches. Further, one point nine million to bring the facility up to required standard. He says, "What happened with Carlone? That's their centre of excellence. Should uh, be warning signs for what could have happened, or what could happen with this report." He says, uh, "The committee has shown Carlone isn't fit for purpose. It's scandalous that millions of euro have gone down the drain on the project." His worry with the report is that it will just drift out to sea I suppose if we're not careful we could lose generations and he says that um, of Brian Lohan what Lohan went through to become manager showed the absolute treachery of some to treat a man of that integrity like that to undermine him was scandalous I'm not even entirely sure what he's talking about here but like this is the local 
aspect of this thing, you know. Um, it's equally scandalous that Claire hurling people didn't support low and better. Hurling people are letting them get away with it, is what he says. And as for the accusation that he just has an agenda, I'm 68. Saying, what, saying that I have an agenda is just the catch cry of the clown. Wouldn't it be easier for me to stay hunting and say nothing? I only want to see Claire doing well. I don't want to see the legacy we left destroyed. I don't want to see the whole hurling landscape in Clare like Carolone overtaken by weeds. My only regret with this whole saga is I'm not from Clare because I'd love to have a real feel <laughs> for like the movers and the players and the uh, family feuding and everything else going on. So this is Lochnan coming out saying things are not good. Yeah, Claire it's, it's amazing how Clare, I don't think it's intentional uh, necessarily, but it feels like there's always something going on in Clare. There's always something bubbling under the surface and they know they all know exactly what is going on. Yeah. But we're not really... So do you know off the, the top of your head what Lohan went through? That was a disgrace. No, not really. I'd have to Google it. Tommy, do you know top of your head what Lohan went through? Um, no. Right. I don't know if it's related to his... Is it related to the, the run-in with, with Davey and any connections like that? But don't know. No, not it, specifically. Right, you see, there you go. But it was a bloody scandal. I'll tell you that for nothing. <laughs> I'm really, but I'm really <laughs> mad about it. I mean, like he, he Lochnan makes a, there's a quote from him here. We've lost a generation because people will not get involved. While Pat Fitzgerald is the county secretary, you can't say that's defamatory because it is an absolute fact. Well, uh, Pat Fitzgerald would strongly, strongly disagree with that, and he would argue that the senior team have been going well, that Lowen's been allowed to get on with the job, that he's doing a good job and he's doing it in the best interest of Clare, and he would strongly argue that Pat Fitzgerald and he would also I suspect talk about the abuse he's received online and say it's way out of order and that people have been OTT on this story and that you know he's not here to defend himself so I think that should be put on record here. Well I suppose speaking of OTT like Lucknan goes on to say if you look at all autocratic regimes all over the world they didn't care that their country was being driven into the ground as long as they were in power. That is the characteristic of autocratic rulers. They don't care as long as they're in power. Yet once they were ousted the countries recovered and thrived. You see the seeds of regrowth once they're gone. But there will be no regrowth in Clare while that regime is still there. Now, there, there are quite a few references to communist auto, autocratic <laughs> regimes in the piece. So look, I mean, I don't know if, I don't uh, know, if Clare's, Clare's problem is that like they've got too many people able to express themselves as, as brilliantly as Gerald O'Clan can. No. <laughs> I just imagine like, because if, if you think about it, like between Anthony Daly and Davey and uh, Gerald O'Clan, like most of the people you know from Clare, I mean, they're they're great old company and, and well able to put their point across. So maybe that's part of the problem. But um, the, the 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 thing that I take took out of this piece of whatever about what's going on at Clare is imagine you're out for a a walk in the countryside in, in down around Fecal, and next thing over the hill <laughs> comes Gerald Land with a pack of hunting dogs at his. I mean, is that sort of I don't know some some kind of Shakespearean sort of you know dramatic device there? Yes. Like it's just like oh here it comes. And the other thing is, like, I, I just, I just miss Sherlock Nan. I don't think he's on TV anymore. Like, he's just, I think he's just one of the great presences. He's, he's great screen presence as well as, as, as on print. Great, great eye for a phrase, as you said. You know, saying I've an agenda is just a catch cry of the clown. Like, you can just hear him, like, you know, in, in the studio. Like, I think he's a big loss to, to, to TV coverage. I don't care if he's, he's sixty-eight. He's still, I mean, he still, he still looks great and he still sounds great. Yeah. And he's, I'd listen Calls to him. it like it is. Like, no, yeah. totally. You'd listen to him. I think, oh, the off lads with their fat legs and their fat arses. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it is like, you know, just to briefly go back to a conversation about punditry, uh, I actually don't know, did Lachnan sort of decide to step away from that himself or was he sort of phased out the way some of the older pundits have been in RTE, for example. But um, it, is a, it is a bit of a concern, actually, particularly with GA punditry that 
because of this strive to introduce more people, uh, younger pundits, people with fresh voices and fresh faces and so on, that, that you could potentially lose somebody of Loch Nan's ilk, you know, and, and that m- maybe we are losing some of these guys from our screens because I think the three of us would be in agreement that, you know, if you if you if it was any sort of a match and you see Loch Nan is on a panel, like I'm waiting for halftime, I'm not changing the channel, you yeah. know. I can't say the same for a lot of the people I see these days, really. Yeah. Well, I think there's been a general softening. It's funny, Sky have definitely gone the other way. I don't know, is it social media, Tommy? And they understand yeah. the value of Keane and his Harry Maguire impersonation. I mean, you could sit here very soberly and say, well, I mean, it's not really being kind. It's not. And, you know, that that's an argument. Whereas they have just embraced it and realised that's going to get 10 million views. So we're on that gravy train. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, he's, it's, it's certainly a soft. He's toned it down since he called Kyle Walker an idiot <laughs> last season. <laughs> What about Kyle Walker's defending here? Well, he's an idiot, Dave. Yeah. I mean, you can draw he's your fancy you can draw your fancy lines, Dave, and do your circles, but the man's an idiot. I know. Like there is a I mean, for, with the Roy Keane thing, like, you know, everybody keeps thinking about, oh, you know, he's a loss of the game. He could be doing a job somewhere and all that. Like Roy Keane is in once once called time in his playing career, he is in the job he was born to do now. He is impeccable comic timing. He is uh has no fear of saying what he what what he wants to say. He, he I mean he he has a he has the sharpest tongue of any anybody in any sphere, you know, have ever come across in terms of finding a weakness and going for it. And God help you if you're on the on the wrong side of it, you know, uh, in a, in a dressing room or, or somewhere like that. And he speaks in and he speaks in short bursts. He doesn't ramble on. No, he's perfect for for the job he's doing. So. Mm. Fellas, I knew this would happen. We are not going to get to anything that we plan to get to. So, for instance, Mark Gallagher and Eamon Sweeney writing about Vera Pau and the Irish team kicking on. We were going to get to, we had several rugby pieces, Bernard Jackman on Japan, Johnny Sexton about to become a centurion for Ireland. We had uh, various pieces on Saudi in the mail, which were really good. Ollie Holt blasting them. Uh, We won't get time to get to them because we've run out of time, unfortunately. So uh, suffice to say, Tommy Martin, enjoy the week on Virgin Champions League week. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Joe. I'm off to look for Gerlock Nan and packs of angry hunting dogs. (laughs) And we have Gavin Casey of the 42. Gav, great to have you on. Come on again soon. Pleasure, Joe. Thanks, Millie. Cheers. That was the papers.